sing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The Lord hath promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And we didn't get to sing this stanza, but it's absolutely my favorite. It says this, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise. And when we first begun. And all God's people said amen to that. It encourages us, doesn't it? To just meditate on those lyrics of that hymn. It encourages us to reflect on the grace of God in our life. And today is a special day because we're starting a new series. And it's actually called the Grace of God series. And before we read our passage, I thought it would be appropriate to reflect upon the significance of the passage and share a few words about it. Titus 2, 11 through 14 is the theological core to the entire letter of Titus. And in the Greek, it's unique because it's one continuous sentence with one subject. The Apostle Paul lays a foundation of truth upon which all the preceding instruction rests. And when we get to verse 15, we'll also see how the verses beyond Titus 2, 11 through 14 are tied together with this passage as well. Well, there's a significant theme that the Holy Spirit led Paul to weave throughout the book of Titus. Paul was focused on ministry and the dynamics of ministry within the local church. If you remember last week, those that were with us during second hour, we went through the hermeneutics study and I passed out a sheet that actually had all the books of the New Testament and their theological significance. And if you remember what the theological significance of Titus was, it was ecclesiology. It was about the ministry of the church. And in this pastoral epistle, it starts out with the Apostle Paul, who I labeled the ministry messenger in Titus 1.1, before he wrote the ministry motive in verses 2-3. through Paul then instructs Titus on how to establish qualified ministry leaders in the churches on the island of Crete. And from there he addressed ministry maligners, okay, I believe that when I preached it, I referred to them as, as maggots. And the reason for that was because they sucked the life out of the church. And so Paul gives specific instructions to Titus so that he knows how to deal with these infectious false teachers. Then our attention was drawn to Titus chapter 2. 
And we spent several weeks going through what I'll refer to as the ministry testimonies of different people or different groups in the church. And we saw that these testimonies describe what our local body is supposed to look like according to the instructions given in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And now we have arrived at the ministry means. And by means, I'm referring to the crux of ministry. What drives ministry? What empowers ministry? What is our ministry mojo? What fuels us to follow the instructions that God has called us to? This is a significant message. And it centers on one subject that is found in our opening verse that we'll study today. And so without further ado, let's read Titus 2, 11 through 15. I invite you to turn there with me if you haven't already. And let's read God's infallible word together. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I think it's appropriate that we pray and that we ask God to bless us as we study this most significant passage together. Pray with me. Father, we want to acknowledge your presence because you illuminate our path. Your Holy Spirit helps us see your word with clarity. And we're asking that you would guide and direct our understanding of this passage specifically. That we would have a fuller understanding of your grace. That we would see every aspect and dynamic of grace in this passage. That we would understand how it should impact our lives. That we would bring our heart to your word and allow it to do its work. That we would be transparent. That we would open ourselves up to the instruction of your word. That we would be changed. That we would continue to make progress in our walks with you. Lord, we're excited to see what you do in our midst as our attention stays focused on this passage for the next few Sundays. And we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask for your help. We cling to you. We look to you. And I pray that you'll use me as an instrument, an effective instrument in your hand as I preach your word and as those who hear the sound of my voice receive it, that you would allow them to see it with great clarity. 
Again, Lord, we entrust all this to you, looking forward to seeing how you answer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our sermon title today is in your bulletin. You can see it right there. It is a grace that saves. And we'll spend our morning just focusing on the very first verse of this passage, Titus 2.11. And as the bulletin indicates, our verse today provides three facts about the grace of God so that you can know what it is. Most important, you've got to know what it is and cultivate a deeper appreciation for its presence and its power in the lives of sinners. And much like John Newton's hymn, we get our hearts stirred up when we reflect on those lyrics of a song written by a mere man. How much more can our hearts be stirred up when we see the passage that is describing the very grace in which it inspired him to write that song? The Word of God should impact our soul when teaching us about God's amazing grace. And Titus 2.11 reveals three facts about the grace of God so that you can know what it is and cultivate a deeper appreciation for its presence and power in the lives of sinners like you and me. Our sermon outline is taken straight from our verse and it reveals three facts. Fact number one, God is a God of grace. And under this point, we're going to attempt to define God's grace. And you'll notice that I provided a little space there for you to write in your definition of what God's grace is. So if you're a note taker, and you can even begin now by writing in what you believe God's grace is. And this will help you to see whether or not you understand it in the most effective way. We'll then consider the different dynamics of God's grace. How does grace function in the life of a believer? And do we relate to it differently as we progress in our Christian walks? Fact number two states, grace has appeared. God's grace appeared. Fact number three, God's grace saves. And under these two final facts, we'll make sure that we understand what each fact means And consider a few of the implications in a believer's life. And as we study these facts, they'll provoke, and Lord willing, answer a lot of probing questions. Again, our sermon is emphasizing three facts about the grace of God so that you can know what it is and cultivate a deeper appreciation and affection for its presence and power in the lives of of sinners. Fact number one is this. God is a God of grace. What is grace? Are there different kinds of grace? Why does Paul mention the grace of God in this context? What is the grace of God pointing us to in this text? Are there different dynamics that we should be aware of? Well, look at verse 11, keeping in mind that Verses 11 through 14 are one complete sentence in the Greek with only one subject. The Apostle Paul is practicing his spiritual gift of not using periods again for us. Verse 11 starts by saying, for the grace of God. It starts out with a conjunction for 
that is not simply pointing us back to the previous instruction that we received last week in verses 9 and 10, but it's actually pointing us back to the whole of all the instruction that we've received in the letter to this point. And there's a really cool connection that I want to help you see. Purpose statements are usually marked in the scriptures with words like so that or in order that. And the Apostle Paul, up until this point, up to verse 11, he's used half a dozen of them in our text. And some of you have probably taken notice to that. And I've tried to emphasize those when I've preached. We see in chapter 1, there was two of them, one in verse 9 and the other one in verse 13. And then there were four up to this point in chapter 2. In verses 4 and verses 5, you can go ahead and look there. You'll see the so that's right there in verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 10. And I call these the little whys of this letter. But the big why is found in Titus 2, 11 through 14. And we don't have the time right now, but if you'll take some time later on, you can actually do this. This is such an encouraging exercise. You can go back and you can read those purpose statements and you can see how they're intimately connected to the bigger purpose, the bigger why of verses 11 through 14. And the truth is that the Holy Spirit could have led the Apostle Paul to place these verses at any point. They would have fit in at any point in the letter. They could have been at the beginning. They could have been at the end. But he put them right directly smack dab in the middle. And in my opinion, I believe that they're placed here strategically because everything that comes before and after flows out of the realities of what these verses teach us about the grace of God. It's like an Oreo cookie, right? The, 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 the sweet center, the filling, the filling in the center. So it is with our prevailing purpose of this letter, which connects and holds the first half and the second half together. And the instructions given need to be understood in light of what we see in verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 continues, it says, For the grace of God, and the subject again is the grace of God, and we need to understand what God's word is referring to. And so to get our facts straight, our subpoints under fact number one should help. And we'll start by defining God's grace before we consider the different dynamics of God's grace. And let's start with the definition. And more specifically, let's go ahead and start with your definition. How would you define grace? I left that space there. Any, anyone want to read their definition for us? Want to shout it out? This is Cornerstone. We can talk. Undeserved favor. Any others? Similar? Unmerited favor? Good. Good. Well, I, I, I want to share this. This isn't some trivial question that I'm asking when I ask you to, to define God's grace. It's actually a, a serious question with, with serious implications because how you define God's grace in your life affects how you live. 
and how it will impact you. It does. And systematic theologian Wayne Gruden, he defines it this way. Grace is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. And this is a strong theological definition. And I would probably just tweak it just a little bit, just to broaden the scope of God's grace. I would say it's God's utterly undeserved goodness, or you could say favor, towards those who only deserve punishment. Now, if this doesn't match your definition, I need you to do a couple things. The first thing I need you to do is take your pen and with a capital letter, capital letter F, put it right next to your definition, okay? That's your grade, okay? And then, and then I need you to put out your right hand and I need you to make an L like this, okay? And then you're going to raise it all the way to your forehead like this, and I'm going to tell you what that means later, okay? But you'll walk around and that'll let us know. I'm just kidding that you didn't get the definition right. That's, 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 not, the, that's not the point. We, we want to see it because, and we want to understand it because it coincides with our sermon proposition. These facts about the grace of God are so that you can know what it is. And that's what's going to allow you to cultivate a deeper affection, a deeper appreciation for its presence and power in your life. And as I shared moments ago, it will affect you. And, and I want us to look at systematic theologian Robert Duncan Culver which is another great systematic theology. I know there's a lot of emphasis. We use Wayne Grudem a lot or refer to Wayne Grudem a lot, but Robert Duncan Culver is another fantastic systematic theology to add to your library. He had this to add. The word for grace in the Greek New Testament appears at least 125 times, sometimes translated thanks, liberality, and favor. In general, Greek literature of ancient times and in non-salvational references in the New Testament, it has a wide, wide range of meanings, as does grace in modern English. It can mean elegant living, pleasing decorative pieces, rhythmic pleasing motion. She moved with such grace. That's not what we're talking about. With reference to... To Christian salvation, the Greek word always has the narrow technical meaning of the unmerited favor of God. And this is how the grace of God should be defined. But is this the way that it's defined in our text in Titus 2.11? Paul uses this exact same expression in Romans 5.15 and 1 Corinthians 15.10. And so it's going to serve us well just to go look at those two usages to see. Let's start with Romans 5.15, and you're welcome to turn there if you want to see it firsthand. Romans 5.15 says this, For if by the transgression of the one the many died, and this is, of course, a reference to Adam's sin, Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So here, the grace of God is pointing to the person and work of Christ made on behalf of sinners through the gospel. Let's look at the second usage in 1 Corinthians 15.10, which is right next door to Romans. 
And this, of course, is Paul writing to believers in Corinth. And he writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Here Paul uses this expression twice, and though at first glance it may not be very clear to see, if we use one of our very important hermeneutical principles that we talked about second hour last week, it's this, it's the near context. You remember us talking about the importance of near context? Well, when we look at the near context of 1 Corinthians 15, it allows us to see that it is referencing the gospel and the impact it had on the life of Paul. So in all three New Testament usages, it's pointing to the person and work of Christ in salvation. The grace of God is indeed a grace that saves. And this also fits well within the parameters of our theological definition. God's utterly undeserved goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Saving grace is a gift of God. It is expressed in God's actions of extending mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to his people. And divine grace is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And the apostle John, you'll, you'll know this and we even get to see glimpses of this in our study of 1 John, but in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, there's a description of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word that came to dwell among us. And when we get down to verses 14 and I believe 17, it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as being full of grace and truth. One commentator expressed it this way. During his ministry, Jesus repeatedly offered forgiveness to a great number of sinners and extended God's mercy for a variety of desperate human needs through teachings such as the Father's forgiveness of the prodigal son and the search for the lost sheep. Jesus made it clear he had come to seek and save those who were lost. But ultimately, it was his redemptive death on the cross which opened up wide the gate of salvation for repentant sinners so that they may have access to God's forgiving and saving grace. He went on to say, the simple truth is formulated in the doctrine of justification by faith through grace. And he cites Romans 3.23 and Titus 3.7, which we'll get to look at in just a bit. He finishes by saying the benefits of grace enrich our lives and unite us together in the church. God's acceptance of believers on the basis of grace gives us a new status. We are children of God, members of the household of God, and can relate to him as our heavenly father. And again, all of God's people said, amen, amen. But question for you. Is saving grace the only dynamic of grace that our passage is referring to are there other dynamics of grace that we need to see i submit to you that there are look at letter b under point one as we consider the progression of the immediate context of our passage it's called the dynamics of god's grace in our passage 
provides different dynamics of the grace of God that we'll cover in this sermon series. And by dynamic, I'm talking about how we interact with it, how we associate with it, how it impacts our lives. And these different dynamics each have their own theological emphasis and implications. And so this will be a good exercise for us because it's going to allow us to see the big picture of where we're going in the coming Sundays as we navigate through this passage. And the first the first dynamic of grace we, you already have. You already know. It's what we're covering today in verse 11. It is a grace that saves. Verse 11 features the dynamic of God saving or his redemptive grace. And it's first for a reason because without this reality of God's saving grace, the following dynamics wouldn't even be possible. So it does need to be prioritized. And as we consider our definition of God's grace, we can go ahead and, and fit it in. And let me show you how to do that. We, we define it as God's utterly undeserved goodness towards those who deserve only punishment, right? What well, we just going to add in salvation. God's utterly undeserved goodness in salvation towards those who deserve only punishment. It brings the dynamic alive. Well, there's a second dynamic and it comes in verse 12 and it is a grace that instructs and sanctifies and this verse will allow us to study and grow in our understanding of how we relate God's grace to our sanctification verse 12 reads as follows instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age And so this is oftentimes referred to by theologians as enabling grace or sanctifying grace. As God grows us and conforms us into Christ's likeness. And so we can adjust our definition to include it. God's utterly undeserved goodness in sanctification towards those who deserve only punishment. Well, the third dynamic is found in verse 13. And it's this, a grace that anticipates. And being more specific, it anticipates Christ's return. Verse 13 reads, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It is a measure of God's grace that keeps us mindful that Christ is returning. And there are a host of implications that impact us, right? And we lose sight of this so easy. And it's going to be so good to cover this when when we dig it out together. Because he could come in a minute. He could come this afternoon. He could come this evening. And it's a measure of grace that God has given to impact our lives. And to shape us knowing that. We don't want to be sleeping at the task. We don't want to not be ready. We want to be prepared. And when we see him, and when we see him coming in all of his glory, that will be a sight to behold, my friends. And we'll also be what? What's going to happen to us? We're going to be glorified. We will be 
just like him. We will see him as he is, and we will be made, we'll, be, we'll, we'll shed this shell of flesh, and we'll be glorified with him. And this speaks to God's utterly undeserved goodness in glorification towards those who only deserve punishment. Verse 14 offers us a fourth dynamic of God's grace. And the verse reads, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And here we can see a grace that perseveres. We can see the progression in the lives of believers. And there's some overlap with the saving grace, with the sanctifying grace, and, the, and they're connected, right? There, there's a great deal of overlap. They, they all overlap to some degree. But it's a measure of God's grace in that he does not lose his grip on us. That he is doing the work that he started in our lives. And we rejoice in that. And the outcome is maturation. It will allow us to mature. And we will indeed be zealous for good works. God's grace is evident in our perseverance as well. And this leads to our final dynamic found in verse 15, which is a grace that must be proclaimed. Verse 15 affirms that these things, these dynamics of grace must be taught and that they cannot be disregarded. It is a measure of God's grace to provide God-ordained pastors and elders and Bible teachers and preachers. It's a measure of, of God's grace to, to provide people like that. And we've all been on the receiving end of being blessed by those who are faithful to deliver the same charge that the Apostle Paul gives to Titus. You could also call these dynamics, dynamics realities. They're real. They're not hypotheticals. They're not just possibilities. But they provide a, a theological core for our Christian lives. I refer to it as the, the warm blanket of God's grace covering every facet of our Christian life. He's got us covered with His grace. And I'm not sure how many sermons it's going to take to cover them all, but I do hope that this overview of the different dynamics um, encourages you with God's grace in light of our sermon proposition. Three facts about the grace of God so that you can know what it is and cultivate a deeper appreciation for its presence and power in the lives of sinners. Fact number one is this, God is a God of grace. Fact number two is this, God's grace appeared. And again, this can incite some questions as we think about it. What does it mean it has appeared was it like a shooting star? It showed up, it burned out, and then now it's gone? Or is it like the sun that showed up and stayed up and it's here with us every day? 
Does the fact that grace has appeared mean there was no grace before? Our time is fading, and to explore this fact, we'll first look at what it means under letter A, and then we'll talk about a few of the implications. First, what it means. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. And in the Greek, this verb translated has appeared, it stands emphatically at the beginning of our verse. And the Greek emphasis stresses the manifestation of grace as a historical reality. And the reference is to Christ's entire earthly life, his birth, his life, his death, and resurrection. And the Greek word for for this verb is epiphino. And it's where our English word epiphany derives from. And so this word means to become visible, to make an appearance. And one theologian shared, it conveys the image of grace suddenly breaking in on our moral darkness like the rising sun, end quote. So when we're talking about the fact that the grace of God has appeared in Titus 2.11, it's a direct reference to the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And ironically, the church age is often referred to as the age of grace. It's not ironic that the only other time that the Apostle Paul uses this verb is in Titus 3.4, which is also in a gospel context, pointing to Christ and salvation. Even the immediate context places an emphasis on the saving grace of God. Look at Titus 3.4, just for a moment. Just so you can see it. And here's what it says. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. There it is, right there. Another epiphany of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same word. Verse 5 continues. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, by his saving grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So now let us talk about some of the implications. Does this mean that grace didn't exist previously? Or how do we understand this verse in light of the Old Testament? Systematic theologian uh, Robert Duncan Culver, when talking about the age of grace, he shared that there is no more pertinent text in Scripture than Titus 2.11. And that's where we're at. And this is what he shares. The actual appearance of the grace of God had been long in coming. Grace began to operate when the God of our first parents spared them after their first sin in Eden. Both of them deserved to die. And except for the plan and the mind of God, for the appearance of his grace, they would have died. Later, God gave a law through Moses to test and prove that grace is, o- is the only possible method of human salvation. Finally, when the grace of God came, 
thousands of years of human history had passed. The time of the appearance of God's grace is no mystery. It appeared with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes ahead and he cites the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And he, he finishes by saying this, Of course, the grace of God existed and operated long before the birth of Jesus. Grace has always been the only method devised by God for the salvation of undeserving sinners. But, and this is the chief significance of the text of Scripture just quoted, grace never became most prominent as God's method of dealing with sinners until Jesus came. It appeared. And the facts, as we look at God's dealings with those in the Old Testament, it reveals His holiness, it reveals His wrath on sin, His righteousness of the law, and we witness different things. The wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the slaughtering of the Midianites and the Canaanites, 70 years of captivity, and grace is not mentioned by name in the Bible till in connection with Noah at the end of the first epoch of human history. And it's important to see this because he is the manifestation of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think many people, um, especially unbelievers that have started and tried to pick up reading the Bible um, from the very first book and they, they journey through, they see, they see a God who I think is viewed as, as harsh. But the Old Testament saints were fully aware of of the grace of God. And uh, Robert Duncan Culver even cites Psalms 32, 51, 130, and 36. And he also um, cites the prophet Hosea as another example. He, he says, nevertheless, Old Testament narrative is in some respects a very grim tale and ends on a very discouraging note. End quote. But everything about the Lord Jesus Christ was a manifestation of God's grace. Grace with mercy and love are present in every incident connected with the coming of Christ. The fullness of God's grace is manifested through the incarnation of the Son. And of course, we rejoice, don't we? We rejoice that we live in that age of grace. That that we're not wondering. That we're not left guessing. When is the Messiah coming? The fullness of God's grace has appeared. Three facts about the grace of God so that you can know what it is and cultivate a deeper appreciation for its presence and power in the lives of sinners. God is a God of grace. Fact number one. God's grace appeared. Fact number two. And the third and final fact states this. God's grace saves. And of course, with the wording in this last clause, it will also come with a host of questions. Does bringing salvation to all men mean all men will be saved? Or that salvation is legitimately offered 
to the entire world of all men? And how is the grace of God to get to all men? What mechanism has God chosen to get the grace of God into the world of men? What responsibility do you and I have as it relates to the grace of God and the salvation of all men? Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God appeared, and it finishes with this phrase, bringing salvation to all men. And just like our last fact, we're going to confirm what it means before ending with some implications. This is very interesting. There is no verb in the Greek text. It simply reads salvation to all men. So the verb bringing is actually supplied in translation. Is it? I didn't check to see. Is it in the ESV? Does it say bringing as well in the, in the ESV? It does? Okay. The phrase to all men properly attaches to the noun grace and not the verb has appeared. So in the Greek, salvation is connected to the grace of God, and thus we have our sermon title and our first dynamic, a grace that saves. And of course, Paul is not teaching universalism. Rather, as one commentator shares, Paul intends this statement in the spirit of what he said to Timothy about about how God, quote, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, quoting 1 Timothy 2.4. Paul also shares in 1 Timothy 4.10 that Christians have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And so the point is this. Christ's atoning work is sufficient for all humanity. It is efficient only for those who actually repent and trust in Christ. And so when we see that God is making a reference to the Savior of all men, It's actually an aspect of common grace. And due to time, I wasn't going to be able to talk a whole lot about common grace, um, special grace, prevenient grace. There's other forms of grace. And we're going to have an opportunity because our subject in this series is the grace of God. So we'll have an opportunity to bring those in at a later point and talk about it. But we we need to see that universalism isn't being taught, that, that all people are going to be saved. That's not what this text is teaching. And the Apostle Paul even instructed Timothy to hold out hope for the false teachers in 2 Timothy 2.25. He says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And so what are some of the implications that we can draw from fact number three? A proper consideration of grace is impossible without regard to the contextual issue of sin and its effects on our relationship with God. Our fallen nature and complete spiritual bankruptcy serve as the canvas for the rich portrait of God's saving grace. And to appreciate the character of grace, the utterly undeserved favor of God towards those who only deserve punishment, we need to see the depth and the contrast of what the Bible teaches about the nature and consequences of our human rebellion. And the Bible is clear. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The way of the fool is always right in his own eyes. Though the fool, does, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. You know what? It's good to meditate on those verses. It's good to understand our, our depravity. It's, it allows us to see and appreciate God's saving grace in such a greater measure. The world, they don't understand God's saving grace. Nor do they even care to understand how truly rebellious their hearts are as they shake their fists at God, as they shake their fists in the face of the one who gave them the very life that they have. They shake their fists in his face. And yet, how does God respond in return? Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Some of you may have heard the story of George Wilson. George Wilson was sentenced to hang after he was convicted of killing a guard while robbing a federal payroll from a train. Public sentiment against capital punishment led to an eventual pardon by President Andrew Jackson. Unbelievably, George Wilson refused to accept the pardon. Can one do that? The case became so legally confusing that the Supreme Court had to rule on it. Chief Justice John Marshall delivered the verdict, and this is what he said. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. God's saving grace becomes a pardon from sin efficiently only to those who receive it. And for those of us in the room, those who have received it, we cherish it. It stirs our hearts. We're so grateful. And it's going to be so good as we study this passage and we continue just to see all the dynamics of God's grace and everything that came and it started with his saving grace. We get to study his sanctifying grace. It's going to be so good. So thankful. But there's someone here I'm sure there's someone in this room right now that has not received the grace of God. The saving grace of God has not recognized that you are the one running from God. You are the one 
that has not repented and turned from doing what is right in your own eyes or doing something or doing what is right according to what other people say instead of what God says. And that you have disregarded your need for saving grace. Maybe somebody invited you to come today. Maybe you're a coworker of someone in our church. You need Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are unprotected. You are in serious trouble. You need to be in Christ. Recognize that and, and, and do not let another day pass without being found in Christ. You desperately need Him. You need to ask Him for forgiveness and He will forgive you. You need to say, I am going to entrust my life to you and follow you and He will take it. And He will guide you. And He will bless you. And He's going to allow you to grow. Oh, all of us in the room that have been following Him, our hearts are so encouraged. We know, we see His loving kindness endures We see it. We see his faithfulness. But I have a question for for those who are already believers. And there was a question that we asked earlier. How is the grace of God to get to all men? What mechanism is going to be used to impart that grace to all men? You, my friends, are the messenger of that grace. You have been given the responsibility and the stewardship to take that message to the unbelieving world. And certainly, our faithfulness to the gospel is the answer. And we've heard this question before. Perhaps you haven't. If not you, then who? If not you, then who? And Sam Cogburn, Amanda, you bless me more. I, I just want to acknowledge them in, in the presence of our church. What, what, uh, their, their, their passion for, for Christ and the lost. I'm just so encouraged. Our, 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 everyone that has gone out and had a chance to evangelize, with you has been greatly encouraged and I just want to share that. And if you are looking to partner up or to be discipled or to be trained in how to effectively share Christ and share the gospel, um, I would encourage you, you have an opportunity almost every Saturday. You can come here and, and team up with Sam and Amanda and they'll let you know how you can do it. And I, I think the, the timing of this exhortation is is really in God's providence. Most of us are going to have an opportunity with the holidays coming up with unsaved family and friends, right? And we need to be strategic. We need to have a plan and how we're going to connect with them and have spiritual conversations and gospel opportunities and pray that the Lord's going to open up an opportunity and one of my regrets in last week's uh, message when I was outside of the illustration was um, 
the opportunity that uh, to, to share this is that some of you are surrounded by all unbelieving coworkers, and similar to a family setting and in the work setting, it's hard to bear the weight of all those people who are unbelievers. You know what? I, I did that for a long time with my unbelieving family, and God allowed me to feel the weight of that and encouraged me to give it to Him <laughs> because I can't bear it. I can't. Not, not, not in my strength. But what, um, what I learned and what was very effective, and I'll just share it with you, was to pray and seek the Lord and, and find that one person, or perhaps it's going to be two people, that the Lord is really burdening your heart and really making you prayerful for. And, and just to be praying for that person that the Lord opens up opportunities for you to share Christ. I wanted to share that last week, and the Lord opened up an opportunity for me to share it this week. Well, that concludes our time. I wanted to share with you that second hour, we're also going to have a time of prayer. And one of the categories of prayer is going to be to pray for all of our unsaved family and friends. You'll be able to even pray for a specific name that comes to mind. Next week, Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity to talk about the dynamic of sanctifying grace. Please pray with me. Father, you're so merciful. We rejoice in you. I thank you, Father, for the heartbeat and the impulse of our church, which is to love you and to love the gospel. And I pray, Father, that that, that love and that appreciation for the, the presence and the power of your saving grace would not stand still. That our faith would not lack feet, but that we would be at the task. And we just rejoice that you open up opportunities for us to carry burdens for people who we long to see trust in you for salvation. And we pray that you would continue to do that work in our heart. We thank you for your faithfulness and enduring love that even burdened the hearts of people for our, our salvation, who prayed for us, who longed for us to be saved and to trust in you and to walk with you. And as a result of them being used by you and your faithfulness being demonstrated through their lives, we now have the opportunity to grow closer to you, to experience all the other dynamics of grace that can continue now that saving grace is in our lives. We look forward to seeing how you use our prayer time. We commit it to you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us to pray for those things most needed for our church give you praise for all that's taking place in our ministries. We ask that you continue to confirm the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.